Hi, I'm Jim Calloway. And I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 54th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Today, our topic is ethics and technology. The rules are changing. And our guest is Catherine sanders Reach, our very good friend and a frequent speaking partner. Catherine is the Director of Law Practice Management and Technology at the Chicago Bar Association. A little change from her previous title, I've referred to her many years as working with the American Bar Association. So welcome, Catherine. Hi, Jim, and hi, Sharon. How are you all today? Very good. Thank you, ma'am. All good. We're really glad to have you with us, Catherine, because one of the reasons we selected this particular topic was because the ABA Ethics 2020 Commission recently came out with its revised proposals. So can you summarize just briefly the highlights of the technology-related proposals? Yeah, let me just kind of put everybody in place where we are with the Ethics 2020 Commission, and this is something that I had a high level of interest in, and I think everybody has been watching this closely. Right now, there's about there's five different topics that are going to go. They're still in draft. You can comment by April 2nd. Then those will be finalized and go to the ABA's House of Delegates at the annual meeting in Chicago in August. And the, they're basically covering confidentiality, client development, and a little bit on outsourcing in terms of the technology. But the big things here are confidentiality, non-lawyer assistance, duties to prospective clients, communications with the public, competency, things like that. Was there anything about the commission's proposals that surprised you, Catherine? And do you have any uh, guess on whether they'll be adopted in due course by most all of the states? I, I I wasn't really surprised by anything. The thing these have been through a series of of comments and debates, so so they're pretty solid at this point. Some of the highlights I think that that I wanted to point out is one: the model one point one competence is going to be changed or updated to emphasize a lawyer's duty to keep abreast of changes in technology, which is certainly new language. The amendments to Model Rule 1.6, Duty of Confidentiality, is now going to include language that has that covers inadvertent disclosure, unauthorized disclosure, and unauthorized access. So adding some language there from previous iterations, then they kind of talk about duties to prospective clients and bring in something that, that's already come out as a, a, a formal opinion, which is websites failing to include cautionary language and what kind of duties that that you have to a prospective client because your website beckons someone to communicate with you and so you need to put disclaimers on there and in terms of what you're not you know don't send confidential information you're not our client those kinds of things they're changing the model rule 7.3 it used to be direct contact with prospective or prospective clients, they're changing that to potential clients because they don't want the model rule definition in 1.18 of prospective clients to carry over to this rule. So it's opened it up. And what that means is it's kind of opened it up to all sorts of communication in different technologies that are prevalent today. So I, I think that was a really positive change in terms of helping people understand the language there. The other one that I wanted to mention, the amendment to Model Rule 5.3 responsibilities regarding non-lawyer assistance. It used to be non-lawyer assistance, ANTS. They are changing it to assistance, A-N-C-E, 
and that's been expanded to include dealing with third parties such as software as a service, online backup, things like that. So there have been a lot of significant changes in terms of just expanding the language to include the technologies that are being used today. Well, you made reference uh, earlier to outsourcing and then to SaaS, so let's let's move over to the cloud. And can you tell us how many states now have cloud computing ethics opinions and, and how they vary? I've heard that some are kind of more onerous in the requirements of the lawyers than others are. I wish I could tell you how many there are. I've counted nine, but the reality is, whereas some of them have specifically talked about cloud computing, some of them were written, like Arizona's, for instance, was really written in response to a lawyer who was asking about generating an extranet for his clients. In some cases, Alabama, their opinion, or when they discuss cloud computing, it's actually buried in their record retention rules. So, I don't know. I could. I. I have no idea how many there are. I. I can count nine that I can cite. Some of the things that, and, and some, I don't think any of them are owners. They're all going by reasonable standard of care. Some of them do go so far as to make recommendations, but not requirements about what might entail reasonable standards. So North Carolina being the one most uh, recently off the block is in terms of recommendations that you have to either have included in the vendor's terms of service or in a separate agreement with a SaaS vendor that the vendor will handle confidential client information in keeping with a lawyer's professional responsibilities. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, that's a difficult recommendation to actually follow. Are you going to go to Dropbox and suggest they have an amendment to their terms of service just for lawyers? And then they also suggest the lawyer, when a lawyer terminates use of a SaaS product or the vendor goes out of business or there's otherwise a break in continuity, the firm is going to have a method for retrieving the data. And that's, for the most part, something that we've seen the legal SaaS providers offering, but not so much necessarily the general business or other services. How do you get your data back? Whose is it? How do you get it in a non-proprietary format? So these are these are good questions that they've put in. Again, not not requirements, but recommendations to think about. Well, Catherine, you and I have done several presentations together about the ethics of metadata. So I'd pose the same question to you. Are there any changes or developments about the issue of metadata in files? Not really that I've seen. Jurisdictions continue to to put out metadata opinions. There are about 14. Now, the issues are what are the sender's responsibilities? And then in terms of the recipients, are they allowed to review or mine metadata? And should they notify the sender if metadata is found? I found it interesting that while the ABA already has an ethics opinion regarding metadata, the new updates to the model rules also include specific language about metadata, inadvertent disclosure, and and couches it in terms of inadvertently disclosing during discovery. So some interesting things, I think, coming out of that that further define sharing metadata the i guess the thing that always befuddles me is how do we know that it was inadvertently sent 
Yeah, they never explain that part. <laughs> no. we, we've seen more and more states try to address the ethical questions raised by social media and other forms of electronic communication, including things like blogs and Twitter. Can you paint for us a picture of where we are with respect to these mediums, especially when lawyers use them from a marketing standpoint? Do the, do the old rules still make any sense in today's world? I think... It, for the most part, the old rules do make a lot of sense. If you think about the old rules kind of being don't misrepresent or mislead people online, that includes not including information that would otherwise have needed to be known. Don't create an attorney-client relationship. And this comes up with things like AVO or LinkedIn, being careful about you know, unauthorized practice in jurisdictions that you're not licensed in by answering questions on these Q&A sites, but also just kind of going too far in your response. And how many disclaimers do you need to add to it? And and some of, some of the ethics opinions that are actually being reviewed right now from a case law standpoint in terms of uh, freedom of speech and First Amendment rights, s- listing specialties. You know, almost every state has has some fairly lengthy discussion about certifications and specialties and who can and who can't state what they are. And, you know, really, it seems like when your LinkedIn profile asks you for your specialties, it's kind of just a word they use and not something that's trying to trap lawyers. You know, the ethics rules tend to move rather slow sometimes as technology developed so quickly. And it was somewhat surprising, I think, that three states allowed attorneys to participate in programs such as Groupon, allowing the equivalent of discount coupons. Do you think there's any ethical problem that you see with with those services? I don't, I guess, you know, the, the big issue with the use of Groupon seemed to be the kind of the concept of fee sharing with non-lawyers. And North Carolina and New York and South Carolina are the ones who have the opinions stating that you can use discount services like this because the fees are more equivalent to advertising fees than fee sharing. And if you go back and remember the uh, the total attorneys case, that was kind of how that, that fell out as well. I think North Carolina is the one that had the stipulation it, that anything you say in the discount um, ad can't be false or misleading, all, all the same things that you would have in any regular uh, rules under the advertising laws. I guess the question is not so much ethical, is is this a really good way for lawyers to, in quote, sell a product? You're not selling haircuts. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, is it denigrating to the profession? What does it do? to how people look at lawyers. And I'll read you a quote that there was, oh, by the way, for, for one thing in Missouri, the Legal Ethics Council wrote an article that says various publications have recently stated that Missouri ethics authorities have approved Groupon. This is not correct. If an attorney is thinking about participating in Groupon or any other marketing program, the attorney can obtain an opinion from the Legal Ethics Council. So basically it's Sarah Rittman. She's saying you got it all wrong Missouri didn't say blanket everybody can use Groupon this was in, in in response to a specific question from a specific attorney and after it was all said and done for one thing the attorney who who got 
written up in the news so much, got sick of answering all the calls from the different people wanting to interview him about his group one deal. <laughs> uh, the other thing, he's, he said he did get a number of new clients, and most decided that what they needed was more complex than what he was offering for $99. So to avoid the appearance of a bait and switch, he gave a $750 credit to those who upgraded. So he still made some money, but again, with the, you know, the truth in advertising, he's giving a discount on a simple service. What they need is not simple. And now he's having to, to further credit and discount the product. It, it gets very complicated because, you know, until you talk to the potential client, you really don't know what their situation is and whether that flat rate thing is going to work out. So, you know, I, I think, it's it's more perception issue probably than ethical. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I agree with you. It it does seem to me that it does denigrate the profession a little bit because these are not haircuts. But <laughs> John wrote me a note and he said, "But the lawyers do try to shave you sometimes." So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> moving moving to another topic. In spite of all the recent law firm data breaches, we still don't see states mandating encryption as an ethical requirement. Do you think we'll see that in the future? You know, it's interesting. I- Everybody reads the ABA's ethics opinion on encryption of email to kind of give a pass, say you can use email and it doesn't need to be encrypted. But in fact, even if you just read the the summary of the encryption, it's formal opinion 99-413, the last sentence of the summary is a lawyer should consult with a client and follow her instructions as to the mode of transmitting highly sensitive information relating to the client's representation. It does not say blanket, you don't have to encrypt. It it suggests and in the comments talks about, you know, depending on the sensitivity of the information, you probably should be doing something other than sending an open email. So I can't see them mandating encryption any more than they mandate anything else per se. I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing some formal opinions after these ABA ethics commissions findings have kind of wafted through the states talking about encryption. We talked about social media a minute ago. What do you think about lawyer listservs? We have a message board for lawyers only in our state, but Are there any special ethical cautions that you would advise about lawyers participating in the old technology, electronic mailing lists? Well, the the nice thing is that since the rules haven't changed that much, there's not much difference between using a lawyer's listserv and using your uh, your social media today. If we're talking about lawyer-to-lawyer listservs, pretty much, you know, same rules apply being mindful of confidentiality, don't say anything that's misleading or omitting truth. From lawyer to lawyer listserv standpoints, I've seen people pose hypotheticals where pretty much anybody in their jurisdiction would know exactly what they were talking about, (laughs) which seems to be kind of not unethical, but unwise. And then if you're talking about lawyer to public listservs, I think being very careful about your comments and and recommendations, creation of attorney-client relationship, those kinds of things. But it's common sense for the most part. But don't, you know, don't, don't badmouth judges. (laughs) (laughs) We kept seeing bloggers do this. It's kind of like, come on now. Yeah. It's out there in public, isn't it? (laughs) A lot of it is common sense. I, I will tell you, although I don't encourage it because I have a, a privileged relationship with my members every now and then one of them will uh, 
give me something and say, you post that to Leah, say it comes from somebody. I'll read all the responses, but that way they won't know who it was from. Yeah, I get that too. People ask me a lot because I'm I'm not most of the time in the practice of law. They'll ask me to post something on the list server and forward the responses for them, which I think is interesting. But given the fact that a number of courts have not accorded privilege to documents created or sent from a work machine, particularly where there's a policy and the employee signed off on it or it's uh, clearly on the logon screen, I ended up adding a clause to my own legal engagement letter advising clients not to send any sensitive data via work machine, and I make them initial that paragraph. What are you advising lawyers to do, Catherine? You know, pretty much the same thing, Sharon. I, there's a, the ABA came out with an opinion in August of 2011 that says a lawyer sending or receiving substantive communications with a client via email must warn the client about the risk of sending or receiving electronic communications using a computer or email account where there's a risk of a third party gaining access in specific context when the employee is, you know, using a work computer where it is likely that that communication may not be privileged because we've seen so much case law to that end. So I, I definitely think putting that in the the agreement and having the client sign off on it and, and make sure they understand, but also having the lawyer use a little common sense again. So if your client is suing his or her company and they're using their work email address, pretty much that I will not use this. <laughs> um, we're going to have to use some other form of communication. Notwithstanding your two co-hosts today, uh, most lawyers are not technologists. <laughs> How much do they need to know about information security in today's environment? I mean, information security is a moving target. And I think the good thing is that it makes news. If you read one major newspaper a day and actually go to the technology section, which may be a stretch for some people. Generally, if there's been a big, a major breach or some new hack or something, it's, it's going to make the news. And, and then obviously, hopefully the bar journals are covering it. I know the ABA journal covers daily, they kind of digest daily news and they'll put in anything they see about this. So it's just a matter of adding that as an interest area and keeping up with it and hiring competent people to deal with it for you, but kind of, you know, you, just because you have someone who's supposed to be your IT guy does not mean that you've, waived that responsibility so i think there's a level of awareness that they need to know they do not have to be super techies they just need to know that facebook changes privacy settings again and what does that mean to us and go find out from an expert or what have you they're, they're often confused too between uh, information technology and information security uh, the people who do information te- technology they'll of course follow best practices but they're not experts in information security which is really a, a related but different field and, and that's what you need and I guess uh, I'll take a point of uh, personal privilege here and just say that the book that John and I wrote with uh, noted litigator Dave Reese uh, is coming out the, this month and its name is Lockdown Information Security for, for Lawyers. Uh, hopefully it's written in such a way that a lawyer can actually read it and understand it because I know it's not native to them. And, and then to move to my last point here, it drives me crazy that lawyers practicing in the cloud have 
virtually never, and I mean really, almost never, read the terms and conditions. We ask them this all the time when we lecture. And, and almost all of these terms and conditions violate ethical duties in one way or another. What do you tell them about that? I don't even bother to ask if they've read the terms and conditions. <laughs> um, I, I flat out say that if you're using free tools for mission critical business, and I'm talking about Gmail, that you shouldn't be that you can almost guarantee that the terms and conditions don't meet ethical requirements. They don't have to listen, but that's, that's the reality. I tend to suggest they look at legal specific companies or companies that are doing business with other business who have far more to lose and not get attracted by the shiny, bright, free stuff bouncing around out there. And another issue I see a lot is uh, pins on smartphones. If you're going to have client, if you're going to have your email and your calendar and documents on your phone, isn't it almost ethically required that you have a a pin on the smartphone? I would say, and again, because it's my job to pay attention to these things, I can't see how anyone would not know at this point that you were supposed to use a pin or even a better password to secure your smartphone. Yet there will be some people who claim they didn't know. At this point, I think you'd be hard-pressed to, to have your head that firmly in the sand. So, yeah, I, w- I would say that I'm you're glad, I'm glad you said it in the not sand. being competent <laughs> under the new suggested rules. And, and in most of these cases, too, although the default is to have a pin that's uh, four characters, that, of course, can be very quickly broken. So it's, it's better to change what you can do in the settings of most phones. You can change it so that you can have a longer pin. So that's, that's also a good tip. Catherine, thanks so much for being with us. It was great to have you. Thanks for taking the time to bring our listeners up to speed on all of these new developments. Thank you very much for having me. And that's all, folks, for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy.